0: (laughs) I like to be free to preach about whatever I want to preach about so when these days come up I feel somewhat restricted Uh, but uh, that means I labour a little bit harder on Friday but never mind Um, Got something that I think the Lord really wants to share with you, with you all, uh, but especially a, a message to the women of this church. In the book of Ephesians, um, we see six analogies of the church, and in every one of these analogies, there is a sense of inclusion that everyone is vital and important to the church. And if you have some notion in your head that you're not as important as somebody else or you don't matter, that is a complete lie. No one person is more important than another person, and no person is valueless. The, the analogies that he gives us, uh, we'll just go through them quickly. I want to end on the one that says we're a member of the family. Now, if, If you've been in a family that's dysfunctional, you know what it is not to be loved and appreciated, or maybe one favored more than another. If you've been in a perfectly functioning, healthy family, you understand inclusion. You understand that you're valuable. You understand that you're loved and cherished as much as anybody else. And I do appreciate that people come to church And because of the lives they've experienced, they are a little bit dysfunctional. And the wonderful thing is that God wants to place us inside a spiritual family, whether we've come from a dysfunctional family or not, place us in a family so we appreciate what it is to be loved in God's family. I don't know how this works, but I think there's an eternal part of the family of God. I I don't understand what it all is. But the fact that you're in a family now doesn't stop. Somehow it reaches into eternity, and that which we learn and enjoy and experience now, we take with us into eternity. What, what are the other analogies I'm talking about? He says that we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We are members of the kingdom of God. We go to a church but we're members of the kingdom, fellow citizens. It talks about we are living stones that when we come together, we form a temple that worships God. We saw that this morning. When we go as stones and we disperse from this place, the temple is no more. The temple is the gathering together of God's people who form a place of worship unto God. Another illustration, it says that we're a single body with Christ as the head. And we're each a functioning part, a functioning organ. There isn't any part of your body that you would say to me, oh, just cut that off, that doesn't matter, I don't want that. You'd say, no, I want to keep all the bits I've got, thank you very much. Sometimes we have a few bits Bigger than they should be and would like to lose them, I understand that. But we want to keep everything because every part is important. Every part is functioning and necessary with Christ as the head. It talks about us being a beautiful bride. Being prepared for a wedding day when we will wed Christ himself. It talks about an army of God whose captain is Jesus Christ himself. And the last illustration we have in Ephesians is that we are members of God's family. You are the member of a family this morning. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our brother. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm a strong believer in the priesthood of all believers. You know that. I don't want to be elevated above you. I don't want that. No one is to be elevated above you. Jesus is very clear about it. Call no man father, he says, because you're all brothers in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. To me, the family has always been the preeminent analogy I've preached on all of them. We've looked at all of them. You've read about all of them. You've examined them yourselves. But to me, the family is the thing that's more important than the others, that which sets in my heart. Perhaps that's why I pastor a church. I have a sense of wanting to gather people in, but not just get lots and lots of people saved, but once God has gathered them in, that we actually function as a family. Loving and understanding and supporting one another. Within the family, the older ones have a responsibility towards the younger ones. Whether it's parents to children, older brothers and sisters to younger one, they have a responsibility, whether they're aware of it or not, but as they live their lives, the younger ones look... And learn. I'm very much appreciative that my teaching doesn't teach you much. It's living that teaches you things. Would you agree with me? I might be explaining to you what's going on, explaining to you what God might want to do next, but really I can't teach you academically because this thing, family, It's not taught academically. Parents don't sit their kids down and say, right, this is today's lesson. I'm going to teach you X, Y, Z. No, they don't. They watch. Children watch. And they imitate their parents. They they follow them. Whether it's eating with a knife and fork, whether it's doing up your shoelaces, whatever it is, younger ones watch the older ones and copy them. And when the big brother and sister does something wrong, they could get a clip round the end. They say, don't you realise that your younger brothers and sisters are watching exactly what you're doing? And we as parents are examples to our children. They're watching us. They don't listen to our lectures. They watch our lives. And they imitate and they copy us. I want to direct you to a passage of Scripture. It's Titus. It's chapter 2... And it talks about various groups of people that we find in the family, in the church, or the family church. Let's read this together. Titus chapter 2. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addictive to much wine." I wonder what that was doing in there, that last one. I thought I would get on my um, internet, but I don't have an internet, you know. I would get someone else to get on my internet for me. And look at the problem with drinking. The problem that women have with drinking. and wonder if it's just as serious as it is today as it was then. Anyway, that just, just arrested me a minute when I was thinking about that. Not given to much one. It doesn't say you mustn't drink, ladies. It just says don't overdo it. So if you think your abstinence is pleasing God, well, it might be. But it's not in line with Scripture necessarily, so don't worry about it. But if you think you're going to drink one and get drunk, don't do it at all. Okay, so, okay, let's move it on quickly here. But to teach what is good. They, so, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, talking to the older men, going back to them now, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. I'm going to jump 9 and 10 because it deals with slaves. Moving on to 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly life in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. The last time I spoke, I said that you were A shining light in the darkness. And as it gets darker, your light shines more brilliant and beautiful. And I suggest that this passage is saying the same thing. In a dark world, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, are to conduct their lives in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen. You preach the gospel every day you get up and step out into the world. This is what this teaches. And in the way that you live your life, you either bring credit to the gospel or you malign it. This is what it says. And so God is wanting us to shine... As bright lights in the world. Men and women. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And the idea is that the older women and the older men pass on the knowledge and the experience that they have gained in life to the younger generation. And so you're all teachers here this morning. You're all examples to those that are going to join this church by the very way you live. Your teaching is more important than mine. This is what this scripture indicates. Your life is read. Paul talks about you're a living an apostle. I look at your lives. I look at you. I examine you, and I see things. What I want to see is a bright light that shines. Shines in the darkness. See what an awesome responsibility God has placed upon us because we're a royal priesthood. I'm not your priest. I'm your brother. You're a priest and I'm a priest. You're a king and I'm a king. So I'm not carrying the responsibility and burden of this stuff. We carry it together and we shine together in the darkness. Older men should be self controlled. You might have to get your Bible out and read what all these things mean, okay, because they have definite meanings. You're to be sound in faith, men. You're to be full of love and endurance. And you're to encourage young men. To be the same, setting good examples of doing good, having integrity, and being serious and sound in your speech. But I'm not talking to the men, am I? I'm talking to the women. Older women, we're going to look at your responsibility today. It hasn't said mothers, it says older women. And it talks about older and younger women. It's talking about older women in the faith, and younger women in the faith who can go to older women or speak to older women and learn from them what they have experienced and learned through life. Paul is called a chauvinist. Many times. Read many books where he's called this. This passage does not allow us to think like this because it takes with even weight men and women the even weight of responsibility of mature men, mature women, younger men and younger women. But what he does and what he's accused of, he is saying that men and women have different roles in the church. They have different responsibilities because they're either men or because they're either women. We live in a society where we're trying to rub the lines out, aren't we? Do you know one word I really hate? Unisex. Can't stand it. Who wants to be unisex, for heaven's sake? What does that mean? Half man, half woman, what does it mean? It means you can come into this hairdresser's and we'll cut your hair just as good as any man can. But I don't want to go to a unisex hairdresser. So there's lots of stuff in our society today where we're trying to make everything equal and the same. And equality. And it just becomes a bit of a mess. Instead of seeing definite colours, we see just a a merge of, of things that aren't clear anymore. And the Bible's quite strong about this. It's quite strong about separating. I was just thinking today, if we want equality, and we don't want sexism, we should abolish Mother's Day, yes? Well, I quite agree with you, but you see, if you go down this line of we're all the same and there's no difference, and we shouldn't talk about differences, then we get rid of Mother's Day, because lots of fathers act like mothers, and lots of mothers act like fathers, so we get rid of it all, but you say, no that's wrong! There is a difference, and vive la la différence. So we have to be very careful that our thinking and our attitudes is not modelled by society, but they're modelled by the Word of God. And what we've looked at today has clearly shown the responsibilities that God is expecting men to have and women to have. You could call this the mentoring mandate It instructs us to mentor younger ones and it instructs the younger ones to go to the older ones to be mentored. And again, something that's sick about our society, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want to go and seek advice and seek counsel. We want to make our own minds up what we want to do because we're free and we don't need this. Well, all you do is you go through the pain the former generation went through trying to work stuff out itself, because you don't want them to explain, or to share, or to show you the best way. And so every generation continues to make the same mistakes over and over again. Young women, young in the faith, you are to pursue mature women those who have been longer in the faith and learn from the wisdom and experience that they have acquired. It's a word of warning because otherwise you'll just make the same mistakes again. And older women, sometimes God brings younger women into your sphere of influence. Be praying how you might talk to them encourage them, lead them, instruct them. You do it with your own daughters. You wouldn't hesitate on giving them the wisdom of your advice. And so in the family of God's people, that is an awesome responsibility that God has placed upon both the young and the old, to seek the wisdom that we might move forward in a certain way. And to give that wisdom in such a way... The people can take it and to seek wisdom in such a way that you're, you're open to hear what people have to say. You don't have to be teachers or theologians to share with people the experiences of your life. You just have to be passionate about the things of God and have a proven character of loving God. See, the years have brought you much knowledge. Isn't it terrible that you sit on it and don't share it with anyone? Isn't it terrible that you take it to the grave? People say to my brother many times, John, why don't you write down the things that you know? Oh, he says, I can't, I can't, I'm too busy. Or, I, I, See, if you've lived a life, what you've lived has to be passed on. What a waste to die with it. All those experiences, all that you've grown, all that you've matured in the faith, men and women, but I'm talking to women, all that you've learned to die with it, what a shame. So the next generation starts from point one and learns the same thing and the church never moves on the way that God intended it to be. Ladies, you've discovered secrets about how to handle husbands. That's true, isn't it? Pass it on. Otherwise, these poor young ladies, they're not going to cope. You've learned some things about rearing children. Pass it on. You've learned things about the home. What's important, what's not important for a godly woman. Pass it on. Otherwise, there would just be mistakes being made again and again and again. Sometimes we make excuses when we read the Bible about cultural relevance. You know, when I went to church as a young man, as a child even, all the women wore hats. Why did they do that? You say, they were weird. No, 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 no. You said, well, it was culturally relevant. But there were scriptures that supported the wearing of hats. There was something about, if you recognize authority and put the mark on your head, you're protected from the angels. That's interesting. What does that mean? You say, well, I don't read that. Now, I don't know the highs and lows, the depths and the expanse of all this stuff and I'm glad and I'm not going there so don't worry about it. But I wouldn't be surprised to come back to the church in 20 years time and see all women wearing hats again. All of a sudden something becomes culturally relevant. You go to places in India where I go, they wouldn't even say grace without covering their hats. Now, I'm not talking about covering heads. I'm talking about cultural relevance. I'm trying to work this out. In the list of the seven things that older women are told to instruct younger women to do, two of them stand out really as not being culturally relevant. Did you, did you spot them? Let's have a look at them. It says, then they can train the younger women... To love their husbands and children. You're not going to argue with that one, are you? That's always culturally relevant, to love your husband and your child. To be self-controlled and pure. Well, we'll stay with that one. That's all right. You're supposed to be self-controlled and pure, ladies. To be busy at home. Ah. This is another one. Now, if you haven't got any kids, don't worry about it. I'm not getting at you. To be busy at home. You say that, well, that's not culturally relevant today. We want to go out to work. Well, I don't think it's culturally relevant for women to stay at home and look after their children. I think it's what the scriptures say to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Whoa! You're happy to be kind. I don't know so much about being this subject to my husband thing. That's not culturally relevant today. He goes on to talk about one or two other things. I think they're all relevant. I think a young Christian woman, before she goes to work if she has children, should ask of a mature Christian woman, Give me your advice. What should I do? Is this the best thing for me to do? Share with me your experience. Tell me what you have discovered and what you have found. Isn't that just wisdom? Isn't that the mother in the church? And same with the young men, the fathers giving counsel to young men as they're seeking to find their way through this. What's the grand purpose of all this anyway? This instruction, this mothering, this this showing the younger ones how to live their lives. These virtues are not about personal fulfillment or individual preference. They're not about that. They're not about you and what you want to do and what you like. They are required for the sake of unbelievers so that those who are lost might know the Saviour. Isn't that interesting? He says, mothers, fathers, teach your children to live in a certain way so we are different from the world. So when the world looks at us, it sees something of the virtues of godliness. Three times it says it. In verse 5, It says, do these things so no one will malign or slander the word of God. Live in these ways so the word of God cannot be slandered. In verse 8 it says, those who oppose you have nothing bad to say about us. We should shine as Christians in our community that even if people are not interested in our doctrine, they see Christ-likeness in the way that we live our lives, the way we are in the homes, the way that young men are in the business world, the way they speak with soundness and sincerity in their voices. That's what the Word of God is driving at. We live this way not to satisfy or gratify ourselves, but that the world might see that we are a different group of people. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Three times it underlines the importance of why we should live in the way that we've been instructed to hear. So our conduct has a direct influence on the gospel. I was talking to someone just this week. We got on to about their spiritual standing in God. I said to this person, Do you believe in God? And they said, yes, I do. And I dared to take it a bit further. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he died for your sins? And this person said, yes, I do. What I didn't want to ask, and I saved myself doing it, was the question of, why don't you go to church? I held myself back from saying that thing. And this person said, I did not go to church because I didn't like what I saw the people doing. Isn't that amazing? She didn't have a problem with our doctrine. She believed the doctrine of truth and even the gospel, but she said that which drove her away was the way that people conducted themselves. Their behaviour was not the Gospel. I can preach here till I'm blue in the face. The Gospel, John 3.16 But if we don't live it, we drive possible converts away. Now in my heart, I do think this person is born again. But they will never grow. Because they are distance in themselves from the family of God. And therefore, growth is impossible. Oh, what an awesome responsibility we share. That our lives are in line with the scriptures. Now, we're not going to be perfect overnight. But as we read the scriptures, we must take them on board and we must. Move forward with the sincerity to be genuine, to be a priesthood of all believers, just in our life and action. I know it's hard to go and talk to people about Jesus. It's always been that way. You don't have to tell them. You have to live it. And then they'll say, why? Are you different? What is it that makes you so loving and kind? Why is it that you cherish your children when others don't? Why is it you have a purity of life? Why is it you have a a kindness and a grace? Those are the things we're... Why is it that you're like that? You see, people are examining your life. God has said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. All men will know it because you live in a godly way. It's not our doctrine they have trouble with. It's our lives. They want to see godliness. It says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. How has the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men? Because ungodly men and women look at you. They're looking at your life. They're looking at the difference that it is. They're looking at your conversation. They're looking at you. And the grace of God has been made evident then to all who look at you. Ladies, you shine like stars. Now like every star in the sky, some shine brighter than others, I understand that, but we're all getting brighter. I'm not, because I'm not a lady. The idea is we shine brighter and brighter. Proof of the gospel must be seen. It must be seen. Otherwise, it's not worth anything. We might as well peddle any religion if it's not evident and seen. When we ascend the mountain, it must be seen on our faces. It must be a reality in our lives. How better for women if they can adore their husbands. Imagine that. A woman speaking to other women, instead of criticizing, adoring her husband, tenderly cherishing her children, not screaming at them, which is so common, who creates a warm and a peaceful home for the family to come home to not latchkey kids, who exemplifies purity, self-control, and kindness of character, and who gladly submits to a husband in leadership. Those are the points he made. My mother never preached a sermon in her life. My mother said a lot, Corrected me a lot, told me off a lot. I appreciate that. I probably needed every bit of it. But that's not what I remember. I remember that like Mark was praying. I remember the godliness I saw in her. Her graciousness, her kindness, her sense of being a woman of God. She never floated round the place like an angel. Don't get me wrong. But there was a tremendous strength of character in this woman. Although she never said it, I saw it constantly growing up. And that is what has made me like I am. The bad bits is not my mum's fault. I did that on my own. But you see how you live your life. In front of people is what counts. We can all give it this. It's not that, it's what you see in a person, and especially in our mothers, that forms the church of the next generation. God bless you. Thank you very much, Phil. That's brilliant. The worship team are already on their way. Thank you very much.